0: Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we're going to get a little bit more through Daniel, almost to the halfway point, and then dive into John. Uh, So let's just start uh, right off the bat with nebuchadnezzar's dream and just to remind you like this first section of um daniel as i mentioned is uh, uh this chiasm between chapters two and chapter seven now normally you would hear it all at once and then sort of pick up on it as you're hearing it but we kind of break it up so you don't really get to the final part of it um but uh this is sort of the start of those things this vision of uh, four kingdoms which we're going to see visions of four kingdoms in chapter seven which you didn't have to read this week and so you have this king's dream um, um, and i i find this section actually somewhat funny and telling of just how crazy nebuchadnezzar is he's sort of like i have this dream i need all these people to interpret and they're like okay what was your dream and he's like i can't tell you because if i told you then you would just lie to me and so um <laughs> the interpreters like we we can't do our jobs and only the gods can do this and so um but daniel kind of raises his hand he Trust in either his own abilities or Yahweh to do this. We will see. Certainly, by the time he prays, like he certainly has Yahweh in mind, but um, he just kind of raises his hand without prompting and says, "I'll, I'll do it. I'll try it."
1: Yeah. What we continue, what we're seeing now, and I think what we'll continue to see throughout the book of Daniel is Daniel stepping into this role as an intercessor in a lot of ways. Daniel's filled with the Spirit of God and he goes into the king who's planning to tear all the wise men limb from limb in order to save them. And so we'll see him later on in the book. And like we've made a lot of connections, doing a similar work of intercession for Israel.
0: Yeah. And Daniel sort of breaks out in song here and it's very much thematic of this whole section with Nebuchadnezzar that God is the most supreme in terms of his power and knowledge and he controls even the destiny of kings, which we will see. I mean, you saw as you read, this is sort of a a theme through at least these first four chapters. And Daniel makes clear, like, this is all the work of Yahweh. Like, the encanters, the magicians, they haven't been able to interpret. it. so, Yahweh is the clear focus here. Even the guards, like, here's the Judean that we have brought in from exile. He's coming to interpret your dreams.
1: So, God has gone with Daniel into exile and is now showing his glory to Babylon. And I really appreciate when God is, or when Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar about the dream, he starts in with his prayer saying, God, to whom belongs wisdom and might. And then he ends his prayer with saying, for you, God, have given me wisdom and might. So for those of us, think about this, for those of us who are in Christ, everything is ours through God, and we have access to, to wisdom and might that belongs to God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit.
0: And so we get the statue, uh, it's made of four different materials and Dana will go on to interpret in the section also that these materials essentially represent kingdoms, uh, or a specific King. And the statue is almost like this linear representation of history, like f- from the head, it being the present day all the way down to the feet, which is the future. And so, uh, the head's gold, which is explicit in this text that it's Nebuchadnezzar in verses 37 and 38. Um, and then the chest and arms, the silver part, uh, identify as sort of the next kingdom, the inferior kingdom. that's coming next, uh, which most will put as the the Medes. Uh, And then we get the bellies and thighs of bronze, uh, which we don't get as identified in this. There's sort of a third kingdom in line, which historically would be uh, likely the Persians um, who also had a large breadth of land after this. And then the legs of iron with feet mingled of iron and clay. And so most interpret this fourth kingdom to be um, what will become the Seleucids who have a a crazy history. And I would argue the back of the second half of the book uh, involves some of the Seleucids uh, and then the Ptolemy crowd out of Egypt. These two groups that, um, really take over, um, after Persia is sort of defeated by the Greeks. And so, um, these, these two kingdoms become the kingdoms that are around and depends on where or how late you, you interpret Daniel. These might be the two kingdoms around really when Daniel might be writing. And so, yeah, but the end of the story is this uncut stone. This is the most important part, the uncut stone, which, Basically, it's a stone crafted by God Himself. It doesn't it's not chiseled by any human. It's only chiseled by God Himself, the suncut stone. And it's going to destroy all these kingdoms. It's going to have this mountain established. And it's very symbolic and significant in this language here that it becomes this mountain. It invokes this biblical imagery as God, sort of the rock of Israel, Zion as the mountain rising above all others, that God's glory is filling the whole world. There's all these illusions. The language is very similar to Isaiah and other parts of the Bible too.
1: And again, we see Daniel acknowledging and declaring God's all-powerful hand in this. And he reminds Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that God is at work and he is revealing himself to these people. So, remember, Daniel is in exile living in a foreign land and he continues to not be ashamed of his God and to go out of his way to testify to God.
0: And he gets promoted for all of his dream interpretations, which… If you're a good Torah reader, you should go, okay, I've heard this story before of a uh, king who has crazy dreams they can't interpret and no one else in his court seems to be able to. And there's this guy who's not from around here. He's kind of uh, in exile in some way who uh, is interpreting dreams and he comes, interprets, the interpretation's faithful, and he gets promoted to basically be sort of like the king's right-hand man, which is the Joseph story, which even more so, the Joseph story, like – it should be like, we've been here before. And, and in the Joseph story, it was, the, it was the, the narrative almost has a point of God is still working, even in your mm-hmm. exile. And God's working behind the scenes. And God's uh, crafting these moments and still sovereign over these things. And so, um, that story and those lessons learned from Joseph, I think, are being applied to the Daniel story now, too.
1: And so, if this is where the story was going to end, we would probably be tempted to focus or believe in some form of prosperity gospel. But this is, of course, not the truth truth are not the case for us. So Daniel's promoted here, but it's not necessarily a happily ever after. He was previously on death's doorstep and God showed up and now God is going to show up through Daniel being elevated in his role. And then God will show up again when he goes back to death's doorstep in the lion's den. So the theme here in Daniel is to watch God really show up and reveal himself in all circumstances, whether easy or difficult.
0: So, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue, and I don't know if that prompts him to be like, hey, I should build a giant statue of myself. And so he builds this enormous statue, dedication ceremony, everybody needs to bow. Um, and as we read, come to find out, not everybody bows. Uh, and some of the Chaldeans certainly notice that at least these three Jewish boys have not bowed to the nebuchadnezzar's idol um and it's a lot it's always helpful to get their their names like hananiah's god is gracious Mishael is who is like god and azariah's yahweh has helped like these great faithful names that each of these guys have um and maybe they've seen like hey when we before we got to exile like There was so much idolatry in Israel. There was so much idolatry in Jerusalem. It has caused the whole fall of our kingdom. Like, we're not doing that anymore. Um, And when they're asked about it, they don't even answer the question. It's not even like a question of, like, should they or shouldn't they? It was like their mind's already made up. They're not going to. And they answered answered the question of why they didn't. They basically are like, well, it's in God's hands. If God's going to protect us, God will protect us. And it's not even like a question for them whether they should or shouldn't. And so the the furnace is heated. Heated seven times normal, so so like a as full as it could possibly be. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, there's four in the fire. This fourth character has shown up and not only that, but they are unbound that the, that the fires of judgment and the fires of maybe life, depending on how you want to apply it, um, are, are not going to burn them. And they're going to be not only untied, uh, they're going to be unbound, but they're going to be protected from, uh, that judgment by maybe this fourth character. And most will put a Christophany. It's just like a old Testament vision of, of Jesus, um, before before Jesus really takes on flesh and John.
1: To me, one of the most remarkable things in this story and in the faithfulness of these three guys is their But if not, they're not dependent on a certain outcome to determine if God is powerful and able, but they are fully submitted to him and they trust that God will deliver in however way God knows best. And I want to just challenge you to consider what does that sort of prayer posture in seemingly impossible situations look like for you as you maybe don't enter this specific situation, but we all enter situations where our allegiance or obedience or faithfulness to God is challenged. And how do you live in the but-if-not sort of prayer posture?
0: (laughs) And then Nebuchadnezzar goes through what seems to be a cycle for him. He's sort of like, oh, this is great. And Daniel, we're going to promote you. And then he builds a giant statue. And now he's going to lift up sort of lofty words and praise towards Yahweh. But we're going to see that doesn't last very long.
1: I think this is, when I was reading it this time, this is kind of the spot that I got to that was like, this really feels like we're reading more about Nebuchadnezzar and his sort of testimony journey more than Daniel or the other three. So we see him kind of vacillate between glory and God. First, he's like glory in Daniel's God. And then he's like, oh, yeah, this guy's pretty good or this God is pretty good. But now we're back at seeing him not only praise God but testifying to specifically what God has done for him and so we watch him in this journey of seeing this Yahweh this God of Israel from a distance and being interested or kind of impressed to taking it more personally and it becoming more personal for him
0: and it's very much like it's 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 about Nebuchadnezzar is all about himself like he's going back and forth between some of this language and recognizing our way. But then it always kind of comes back to, and then I built a giant statue for myself. And then I was this giant tree. I know he doesn't say that, but this is the dream he has this large tree with a lot of influence and a lot of authority and a lot of power in a lot of ways. Um, But in that dream, there was this watcher, there was this angel who came and chopped down the tree and this personified tree eventually had a mind like the beast. uh, and, And the message of the watcher in the story is God is the one who appoints king. And so um, this is the language here. And having just read Ezekiel, the language of Ezekiel around Pharaoh in Egypt was the exact same. It was He was this large tree, but because he was so full of pride, he ended up being chopped down. And so um, there should be maybe how well the crowd for Ezekiel and Daniel know each other is a question. But um, there, there's likely um, some overlap of imagery between the two.
1: I can't remember how long it is, but Daniel has known Nebuchadnezzar for quite a while at this point. And look at how long it's taken Nebuchadnezzar to kind of start to come around and reflect or wonder about Yahweh and if Yahweh is worthy of worship. And it kind of made me think back to the time that I was journeying into my own salvation story and coming to faith and seeing the way others lived and being inspired and encouraged by that. So it's an encouragement to you to be that for others.
0: Yep. So Daniel interprets the dream that it's Nebuchadnezzar himself. No surprise. Uh, Even as a reader, you're kind of like, this sure sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, And the message of the story is that like all earthly powers, including that of the king, is just subordinate to the power of God. Mm -hmm. And Daniel's pretty matter of fact about it. And then he actually calls Nebuchadnezzar to repentance for it. Um, And so, uh, but... That doesn't necessarily happen.
1: I think it's like, let's just step back for a minute and remember that this is the guy who took down Jerusalem, who took Judah into captivity, and Israel kind of, like, their whole land went away at this point. And yet God is coming into him and giving him an opportunity to repent and be restored and to show practice righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed. That's pretty amazing, of the mercy of our God wanting all to draw all people to himself.
0: Yep. And we still see a prideful Nebuchadnezzar a year later, even though he was told to repent. And he's immediately struck with sort of acting like an animal. Um, And he does this for seven years. But then the transition, he lifts his eyes towards heaven, and suddenly he's able to speak again. Mm -hmm. And Nebuchadnezzar is really restored. uh, And this is sort of the, if you're going to create the chiasm of the first half of this book, this becomes sort of the center point of it all. Uh, The sort of phrase here of I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, which is a phrase that only exists in the book of Daniel, that God is the king of heaven, uh, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And all who walk in pride, he is able to humble, which as Sarah was saying, like, I think it's true. Uh, uh, this book is named Daniel, but I'll tell you what, for the first four chapters, uh, or at least the first three chapters, the, the 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 point of the story is really around Nebuchadnezzar and this pagan maybe at times ruthless king repenting and being brought low and praising God because God is the one who's sovereign and God, even the the theme we saw in the beginning of Ezekiel, God's the one who's still on the throne, not Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar acts like it, God's going to teach him a lesson.
1: So, we see that, like I just said, the tool that God used to bring judgment on Judah has now found salvation. And I kind of thought back to Habakkuk and his writings and God saying, watch, you're, I'm going to do something utterly amazing to you. And imagine what Habakkuk would think seeing all of this go down now that it's all happened in Babylon. It's pretty amazing. Yep.
0: And then we went, we'll go from a king who seems to have learned his lesson to the next king in line who does not. Uh, and that's Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. It's a giant party. Decides to even bring items from the temple that had been ransacked in Jerusalem and party with them, which is just that much more like you start hating the guy. And then there's suddenly this writing on the wall. Uh, And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Daniel reminds uh, Belshazzar. He's sort of like, hey, remember your dad? And, uh, your dad had to be brought low and Yahweh like humbled him and did this work in him. And so Nebuchadnezzar humbled, was humbled by God and Belshazzar, you need to know that. And then he interprets the language, uh, the writing on the wall, which is essentially interprets as, Hey, your, your days are numbered. God has weighed or judged ultimately your kingship and he's going to hand it over to somebody else. And so when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and learned his lesson um, and restored to his throne, Belshazzar in contrast learns nothing from the example, blasphemes against God and his kingdom is given to others.
1: And we see Daniel continue to serve God faithfully. We're decades and decades into him being in Babylon, but he still doesn't want a reward for the interpretation. um, And is. Doing his best to be faithful to Yahweh as an exile.
0: Yeah, <laughs> It's like, hey, I'll give you a position. And Daniel's basically like, no thanks, but I'll still interpret it for you. It's great. And then uh, under this new king, this Darius, as we're introduced to, uh, Daniel seems to do quite well enough that he's going to be number two. Uh, but then there's those who are jealous uh, of Daniel and um, play a trick on Darius into sort of a decree uh, that no one could pray uh, to anybody but Darius for 30 days. And Daniel just keeps doing what he's doing. He doesn't even like alter. It's not like he's trying to go out of his way to protest. He, he was always praying the same way every day, and he just continues to do so, basically being faithful to what he was already doing in obedience to God. And they catch him, uh, the king, who's very distressed. Obviously, he seems to actually really like Daniel, uh, but he doesn't want to go back on his ward, thrown into the den of lions. Next day, finds Daniel alive. Daniel informs him an angel had helped him out and the king decides to punish those who conspired. Yeah, the end of that story.
1: Daniel just seems to handle this with so much... Uh, composure maybe Uh, I think we see that the previous challenges and journeys he's walked through of being taken out of Jerusalem and going into exile and being put it put at risk and then being elevated he just has a lot of faith and trust that God is gonna do what God's gonna do and so he can walk into any circumstance whether awarded to rule over kingdoms or to go to the lion's den content and and with faith
0: so, uh, jump to the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 1 through 3, essentially. Uh, Though The back half of chapter 1, we got the wonderful intro already. Uh, and we meet the, some of the disciples. Um, and John, some of John the Baptist's disciples go with Jesus, but that makes sense. We've already seen in John the Baptist, he's very much constantly pointing towards Jesus. Um, and it's important to note, like, Galilee is not the biggest area and very not populated at this time. It's not the most populous place in the world. And so, and Nazareth itself is not far from most of the cities that these kids come from or these young disciples. And so um, it's possibly that they already know each other a little bit and there's some that don't, but um, we shouldn't assume that maybe all 12 disciples are total strangers to Jesus, that there's possibilities that some of these
1: guys know each other already. There's so much Messianic language in this as well, which is pretty different than the other tellings of these stories of the just disciples, Jesus calling the disciples. So he's called the Lamb of God, and Andrew declares him as the Messiah, and Jesus renames Peter. You just see a lot of things happening in a kind of compact way.
0: Yeah, and in the next section, there's really a lot lot of, um, I would argue, come and see language to -hmm. to this first chapter. Um, We see Jesus use that sort of language when they're like, Jesus, tell us where you live. He's like, come and see. And then the sort of invitation of the disciples to come and see. And for John, I think he's even using this as sort of the the capstone of this introduction to Jesus. Because up to this point, like Jesus hasn't done a a sign or a miracle or hasn't really even taught really much of anything. And uh, I think John, into telling his gospel, is giving us a little bit of that too, of Mm -hmm. saying like, all right, listener audience come and see this jesus that i'm about to tell you about Mm, yeah and so we get sort of jesus coming on the stage i think in this first major miracle um and by the way like we've read through some of this imagery before, uh, Amos nine and Genesis 49, there's going to be this abundance of wine that comes sort of with the Messiah. Uh, we've connections with the Messiah and wedding festivals and places like Isaiah. So, um, I, I think there's messianic overtones to this whole mm. wedding storyline. And, and in some ways I would also argue that I think the story sort of parallels because I don't think John includes the, the teaching on old wine and new wine and new wine skins. And for John to include a story where they're taking sort of the, the, ritual water jugs and filling them with this new wine um, I think is sort of like the Messiah is here like this is a moment to celebrate because the old wine new wineskin stories has to do with like the disciples and why they don't fast and and all that kind of stuff and I think for here it's sort of like look the Messiah is here this is a celebration this is the grand entry for John in the gospel and it's the first sign uh, that we're going to see seven of
1: So John uses so much imagery and so much language to communicate something else We see it a ton with water, with light and dark. We'll talk about it more. But we do see it here with the wine and with the water. Jesus, you know, we know that Jesus takes what is needed for purification and he provides blessing through it. We can say Jesus is the good wine compared to the previous prophets. And wine really was a symbol of flourishing and Jesus has come to bring that. So this. The story of water turning to wine in Cana is meant to represent so much more. And I know this is kind of hard, at least it's hard for me with a much more kind of linear, literal perspective in writing to get so keep digging in when you see phrases or imagery or words think about what other significance it has throughout scripture because you'll see so much of that in the book of John
0: and then John uh, shows up to cleanse the temple now uh, if you remember from the other three gospel writers this happens right at the end but John actually has it happen twice in this gospel first here and then last on the Easter week storyline um, and, and I would argue because I've always been a little puzzled why why does John tell this twice and he's had time to write this after the gospels. So he obviously feels like it was left out or is telling it for, for a purpose. And so um, I, I, after going through Leviticus, like I think there's something more layered that John may be doing. And this is just a guess. So don't take my don't, – don't like – Go make a giant theological point about it, but uh, Leviticus 14, um, there's teaching around how to clean a house that is diseased, and that the the first step would be a priest would come and inspect it and see if it's diseased, Um, and then if it is, they would leave the house alone uh, for a a, a short period of time, and then they would come back to the house. If it was still diseased, it would need to be kind of white clean in some ways. There would be some sort of like trying to fix, but if that ultimately doesn't work, the house Would be destroyed, and if that's the case, like that matches very much what is going to happen to God's house, this temple, in the storyline. Like Jesus has shown up, he's he's at least given the first like um, assessment that this is disease. When he comes back, obviously it's still going to be broken and diseased, and he's going to do some act of cleansing. And soon after that, whether you want to look at his resurrection or at 70 AD there's basically a destruction there's a removal of the house and so um and if he's really the high priest like that's all this imagery and if, if it's not that at least it's passover week where people would be making sure to cleanse their house for leavening and all this sort of what would be considered unclean things and so jesus is at least doing that but i think that leviticus 14 teaching i think plays in here as well
1: And something we talked about last week when we were in Ezekiel is that we can follow themes throughout all of scripture. Again, themes of light and dark or creation and decreation. And one of those things is the temple like we talked about last week. And so we see this here. Jesus emphasizes that the tabernacle and the temple are temporary because there is a more permanent place of worship. And we'll see that again in John 4. We saw that in Ezekiel and we see it in God's design, the way he created and designed the tabernacle. And we see it promised in Revelation. So I think Jesus cleansing the temple And speaking of it, building back up after three days is really part of the hinge point in the story of God reconciling his people to himself and the role that temple plays in that.
0: Yeah. And uh, once again, it's a a good reminder, too, that the main family of priests that are really in charge of the temple at this time, which are not all the priests that work in the temple. We see folks like John the Baptist dad and stuff like that who aren't that way. But um, this group is almost like a mafia corrupt Bunch, And so the sacrificial system, all the requirements of the animals, all the requirements of money, all that kind of stuff, it's all controlled by them. And so there's a big racket going on in Jerusalem at this moment. And Jesus has had, I mean, so angry, Ford makes a whip to, to kind of deal with it. So, um, But then we get this kind of little transition line from John. And in some ways I feel like people are noticing Jesus, but Jesus at least is suspicious in some ways. At least that's how I read it, suspicious of their motives kind of stepping away being like i'm you what you want from me is probably not what you actually want and uh, kind of walked away
1: yeah he has a very clear purpose on earth and he's not going to waver from that purpose even if it means loneliness
0: and then we get the whole Nicodemus exchange And uh, this if the first encounter was with this corrupt leadership at the temple we find out at night at least somebody who uh, and he likely comes at night to sort of um, not be seen by that many people do this um, but he breaks the mold he seems curious about this Jesus. Maybe he's seen the corruption in the leadership in the temple and wants to know more about what it means to to, to be a follower of God. And so um, and we get introduced to this idea of being born again. So um, God's people aren't just the people who are born f- biological family in the line of Abraham. Um, what Jesus will bring out is that, no, no, you need to be um, spiritually born again. It's, it has nothing to do with your heritage. It has to do with being born of water and spirit being a new creation would be almost the, the, the implied language there of water and spirit which are like the two things that are there at every like major reset in the mm-hmm. storyline and so um, and, and he goes on to use this sort of numbers analogy where he's like look it's like in the desert and there were these snakes attacking the Israelites and the golden serpent was lifted up and they weren't saved they were saved simply because they were Israelites like in that story they were saved by the people who had faith that God can save through this image that was their image of death it was the the thing that like was killing them. And so it, I think what Jesus is doing in a way that's probably confusing for Nicodemus in some sense is foreshadowing that is through this raising up of this image of death that we can also be believe and be saved. And and I think it's pointing forward to his crucifixion already.
1: So, yeah. So in with the serpent, when the people in numbers lifted their eyes to the serpent, the thing that previously had brought them death delivered them and as we lift our eyes to Christ crucified the thing that brought him death has delivered us and given us life there's again so many analogies and connections in this section and i'd encourage you this is the first time we see nicodemus in the book of john but it's not going to be the last so he's nope. kind of a fun story to follow similar to what we did with nebuchadnezzar and daniel so keep following and looking for nicodemus's name to show up
0: and then we get probably the most famous line in the new testament possibly uh god so loved the world um and so, it, and it's a brilliant life. I mean, it's, it's popular for a reason, and that's because it is a almost a one-liner summation of the gospel. Um, and, and the drive, even in sort of the Greek construction of the sentence, is sort of towards this limitless infinite love of God. God so desperately loved the world that he did this. And once again, we use images of dark and light, and people hate the light, and they stay in the darkness, but there are those who come to the light, only to reveal that the good, look, good works that they had in the first place were brought by God himself, which coming from a good reformed person, like back around like that's it's very much the case like there's those who are in dark and they go after the dark things but then people come to light and maybe they feel like oh here are my good works and then they bring about and it's like yeah i i produce those things in you and so uh, that's sort of the picture that's
1: being presented i think i really like how john reveals jesus as the son of god through his dialogues and interactions with other people so we have nicodemus who's curious he comes at the cover of night just to ask this guy a couple questions and because of that we have John three sixteen, and we'll see and hear these kind of epic statements that form so much of what we believe come out of these conversations. That these, you know, I mean, that Nicodemus didn't intend for this to end up in Scripture. It's just cool how God works in that way, and how John highlights that.
0: Yeah, if you if you use a physical Bible that has red letters in it, you will certainly catch on that John's gospel is just like red. So much more than some of the others. Uh, and so, um, and then we sort of cap off this week's reading with, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, John sort of gets word that Jesus is baptizing nearby and he uses a sort of wedding analogy. And essentially he's like, look, I'm a friend of the groom. And like, he's like, so who am I? Like the groom's the main point. And he almost the people that he's talking to are almost like the bride. Like your job is to go over and be with the groom. Like I'm just the friend. And so you are the point. And and even more so Jesus is the point. And so go, go see him. And it's just this humble disposition in the midst of this, like, especially reading through Daniel and all these lessons about pride and humility, like John the Baptist, particularly in John's gospel, maybe I just liked his name or something, but John the Baptist is just like, so presented with, with the humility kind of character to him.
1: Yeah, he really, he understands his role, which is to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he doesn't try to take any other role.
0: Nope. Psalm 69, which we actually heard of this week in yeah. the reading elsewhere.
1: Uh, so I think so many people can pray this. It's I I think of the guys in Daniel, and also, of course, the messianic component to the psalm, but they're all rooted in trusting, not their own ability to save themselves, but the steadfast love of God and his goodness.
0: Yeah, Jesus definitely quotes it during the cleansing temple text and interesting enough psalm 69 is this context where the author is like everyone hates me everyone dislikes me they want to kill me but the zeal to your house like that's what that's what's driving me and so um yeah psalm 77
1: i love this psalm for kind of leading yourself through struggle i know we only covered the last half of it or the middle of it i can't remember um (laughs) But last half, last half. The, the first half of this was a lament. And the author here, Asaph, is encouraging himself by remembering all God has done. So do the same when you struggle.
0: Yeah. And it's, yeah. It's just a lot of recounting, which is constantly a theme. Remember what God has done. Remember that God has done this. Remember that God did this um, and, and that He's going to continue to be faithful to us. So next week.
1: So we're going to start Job next week, and here's what I would encourage you to do is figure out what question the book of Job is asking and answering for us so that you can read the book of Job with that sort of context in mind. And I found the Bible Project video really helpful. And in the New Testament, I just encourage you to continue to follow patterns and analogies and imagery, uh, especially in the backgrounds of the people that Jesus is doing miracles for. So pay attention to who they are, their gender, their religious and ethnic background, and see if you can find any patterns or anything noteworthy
0: yeah and, and as i mentioned last week there's some history that would be helpful to, to as you read the re- second half of daniel but um yeah as sarah said we're into the last we're into Job, which is really the last of the wisdom literature we're going to read um and and my take on some of these wisdom books from proverbs to ecclesiastes to Job, is um, they're almost like tools to help you navigate life tools such as um, e- even if you include song of songs and psalms or like tools such as prayers to sing out loud and just about any circumstance or to pray tools are a reminder of God's wisdom. Um, it's like Proverbs is like life is fair and, and there's good things that happen to the righteous and bad things that happen to the wicked. But then Ecclesiastes come along as another tool of being like, yeah, but that's not always the case and, and what to do when things don't always make sense. And then Job going, you know what? Sometimes bad things do happen to even the righteous. And yet, the lesson that that should be derived from that. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an important kind of question. So as you read what tools, what tools should, should Joe almost be giving you as someone who's just walking through life, trying to be faithful to Yahweh. And then New Testament, uh, we get another set of stories. I think John's very crafty in how he structures his scripture. Um, And there are certain settings and backdrops to each of these stories. And so um, some like Sabbath or Passover or the Feast of Booths or Hanukkah. And so we'll get to a couple of those. We're not going to get to each one of them. Um, But Jesus teaches each of these in very specific contexts. And so see if you can connect the dots of what Jesus is saying and maybe the backdrop that he's kind of saying it in. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks.
1: Thanks, everybody.